All right. Friends, would you believe it? We are coming to the end of our series on the book of Ephesians. We've studied pretty much every verse of this letter, and we only have one more sermon in this book after this one. And one way we can think about what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 4 to 6 is that he's really trying to give us the building blocks of a gospel culture, right? This way of seeing it will really frame our discussion today. What do I mean by that? So let's back up a little bit to recap what we've been talking about for the past few months, right? Paul wrote this letter to a small community of Christians living in one of the largest and most important cities in the Roman Empire. So Christians there, like the inhabitants of the city, were really diverse, and they came from all sorts of backgrounds, different cultures, different social classes, different ethnicities, bringing into the church a bunch of different worldviews and beliefs. And they were really trying to figure out still at that point, what does it mean to be a people who are so different and have nothing in common with each other to be united under the term Christian? Now, Paul's thesis, his main point is that Whatever our previous identity was, that's not actually what's important anymore. Whatever ethnicity we come from, whatever social status we were born into, whatever family that we have our name on, all of that is at most right now secondary after we have followed Jesus. Because what is primary about us now is that we are all collectively new creations a unified, holy nation under the same king. Having been adopted into the family of God, and each of us have been freed from sin and given eternal life in the same way by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's what chapters 1 and 3, 1, 2, 3 is all about. And this new identity in Christ changes everything. Although we don't use, lose our individual uniqueness, being this new creation means that we are doing everything differently. Reimagining and reordering everything according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Creating these norms, habits, institutions, or cultures that have been shaped by the gospel. And it will radically change how we behave and think in our closest relationships. That's what the household code is about. And Tezar uh, spent quite a bit of time discussing these relationships that we have in our immediate families, right? The husband and wife relationship, the parent-child relation that we all have. And now, Paul here is going to bring up another pair of relationships that would seem much more foreign and unrelatable to us here in Jakarta, 2023, right? The slave-master relation. Stick with me, though, because I hope that through this sermon we can see how Paul is actually bringing into view principles that's relevant for every culture and every relationship at all times. Okay, so before I go further, let's read this text and see what it actually says. Ephesians 6, verse 5 to 9. This is the Word of God. Bond servants, obey your early, earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man, 
knowing whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay, so I think we can all agree that for almost anyone on this side of history, living in a post-colonial and highly globalized world, what we have just read here could be deeply disturbing. Especially if we're reading older translations where instead of bond servants, it uses the term slaves, which is such a loaded term, right? Which make us recall some of the most horrific and shameful times in human history. And to make it worse, Christians in the past have indeed wrongly abused Bible passages like these in order for them to justify the institution of slavery. So I just want to first just be sensitive to the trauma that slavery has caused and acknowledge that the church was at one point complicit to this trauma. However, I do want us to move forward by taking Paul charitably here. Because first of all, slavery in Paul's day was nothing like the racism-based Atlantic slave trade that most of us probably associate uh, slavery with. Rather, slavery or bond service here is really an arrangement whereby if someone had a lot of debt and went bankrupt or something, they can sell their family into slavery, working for someone and being their property for a time with the hope of eventually earning enough money to buy their freedom again. And this happened all the time, right? People did buy their freedom again. Not everyone ended up being able to do so, but a lot of people did, and uh, it was a thing that happened. That being said, right, I remain convinced that any notion of a human being owning another person is, is straight up wrong, right? And the slaves that were living in the Roman times were also living in oppressive conditions, right? Like masters back then could kill their slaves or abuse them without really any legal consequences. So it's a still messed up system that, thank God, is not around anymore. But back then was the norm. Scholars estimate around 30 to 50% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves, right? So it was a very significant part of the population, and so it makes sense why Paul took the time to address this institution, not just here in Ephesians, but also in 1 Corinthians and Colossians, if you want to look that up. But he didn't go against the institution of slavery, and probably in a way that we would expect. You see, Paul's strategy here was not to become an abolitionist and start some political revolt, right, like some would probably like him to do. I imagine that if he tried doing that, he would very quickly be crucified by the Romans who didn't think twice of doing that kind of thing. Rather, we read in our text that Paul does this actually by advocating for values that undermines the foundation of slavery. Through instructing both parties, masters and slaves, to relate to each other in such a radically different way that it makes the distinction between master and slave almost irrelevant. In other words, Paul wasn't interested in a political solution to the problem of slavery. He wanted to transform the people who are in the system itself, 
teaching them how to relate to one another regardless of the existence of any human institution. You see, he's starting a revolution that revolutionizes the revolutionary. So, okay, like you might be saying, so Paul isn't racist or pro-slavery. Now, what does that have to do with me? Well, wouldn't you agree that one of the main things that differentiates one culture from another is how we relate to differences in power? This guy, uh, Gerth Hofstede, certainly thinks so, right? I'm sure some of you are familiar with his work. He came up with this cultural dimensions theory, which is a really widely used sociological framework to describe cultural differences and how these values translate the behavior. And Hofstede identified power distance as a key dimension that differentiates culture. And if you look up Indonesia on the Cultural Dimensions Index, which you can do via Google, you will see that our culture actually scored really high on power distance. Meaning that Indonesian culture mostly accepts this unequal distribution of rights and the visible disparity of privilege between those who hold power and those who do not. So those in positions of power would demand respect and expect complete obedience for those who are under them. And those who are subordinate in these roles expect to be told what to do. And they really fear taking their initiative because they don't want to overstep their authority. Right? Does that sound familiar to you? I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't, right? Because our culture is wired into accepting these hierarchies. And we constantly have to manage these hierarchical relationships in our lives, at least at work and with the government. Hence, Paul's instruction here is certainly applicable for us. Although the differences of power is nowhere near like slave and master in the Roman Empire, the gospel story also shapes how we proceed in the hierarchical relationships that we are currently in. And in our context, living in light of the gospel together will create a culture which has three features, right? Our three points. Gospel culture will create subordinates who embrace an ethic of excellence, superiors who embrace an ethic of equality because both have an eye on eternity. Subordinates who embrace an ethic of excellence, superiors, ethic of equality, both eye on eternity. Okay, so with that unusually long introduction out of the way, let's get into it. Finally, point one, subordinates embrace an ethic of excellence. Now, let me point something out again that Tazar has mentioned in every sermon about the household code that it would have been very striking to Paul's original first century Greek Roman Empire Christians for Paul to address his subordinate groups as he does here by talking to the bond servants or slaves. Right? Other household codes would just give advice to the masters how they can get the slaves to do what they want. But Paul addresses the slaves directly. And by doing that, he's already giving them a level of dignity that is uncommon and countercultural in his context. Saying that these 
Slaves are not just expendable pawns that can be used or abused according to their master's liking. Rather, Paul is addressing them as morally capable and responsible persons with a duty who are equally members of God's new creation family like the masters are. And this was huge for them. But indeed, their duty was to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, Paul doesn't mean being scared when he talks about fear and trembling here. He uses this phrase elsewhere like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2.12. And we can conclude that what he means by this is that we ought to perform our obedience in a genuine and wholehearted manner, which looks like this over-the-top commitment excellence, putting in your very best effort with as much integrity as possible. Because, unlike what at least our culture believes, obeying and working for someone is not the meaning in the eyes of God, but rather a very much noble thing, and it is proper to do well and without resentment. Now, of course, this does not mean, right, let me clarify this, that we should do whatever the people in authority tell us to do. We can read in verses 5 to 8 that Paul emphasizes at least four times that we are ultimately servants of the heavenly Lord. So if we're ever instructed to harm or deceive another human or whatever else might be contrary to what Jesus teaches us, the choice should be clear. Yet it does, not, it, it does mean that our obedience is not conditional upon the person or institution who is giving us orders. It was Peter, actually, who said this more clearly in 1 Peter 2.18, when he says, Servants, be subjects to your masters with all respects, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So even... If the company is overpaying us, we will show up to work and work towards our well-being. Even if the government is corrupt, we still obey the law and pay fully our taxes. Even if your boss isn't giving you the credit you deserve, we still do our jobs excellently. And we endure the injustice because we don't ultimately work for them. Rather, our perspective is that we are doing these things not for any human, but for Christ. Isn't that what verse 5 tells us? And to make things harder, friends, in another one of Paul's instructions regarding slavery in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul lays out more clearly what the attitude of those who are under the yoke of slavery would ideally be. He tells them to live as you are called. He says, you know, if the opportunity to earn your freedom is there, by all means, go for it, right? Which, again, happens and is a real possibility. But he tells them not to be concerned about it. To not make earning your freedom be the reason for your work, but rather to live the life God assigned you to live. In other words, being content in whatever situation God happens to call you. And man, isn't that such a difficult truth to swallow for someone living under a situation as oppressive and harsh as slavery? 
And I'm certain Paul understood that. And the only reason why he has the audacity to tell such vulnerable people something like that is because the gospel tells us that on the cross, Jesus has purchased freedom from the ultimate slave master, our sins. It's because he has bought us with his life, we belong to him now, and he has called us not to slavery, but to freedom, and he's given us this freedom for free. Therefore, we can say to whatever authorities were over us that you don't own us. You're not ultimately in charge. And whatever you do for me, whatever you take from me, God will pay back with interest. But I'll still do my best anyway to serve you because the one above you has assigned me to you. Like, you're my client, but really I'm under contract to God, working for your benefit, but are ultimately accountable to Him. I think this is why Paul had to explicitly warn the slaves in the Ephesians church in verse 6 to not obey their masters by the way of eye service or as people pleasers. To not let human approval be your goal. Because indeed, the approval and admiration of humans is far too unreliable and fleeting. It can be here today and gone the next. One mistake and suddenly you're in somebody's uh, hit list, right? You're in their bad graces. That's why we can always, we're always kind of insecure. Scared that we're not doing enough or have done something wrong. But when we do have it, we can very easily grow dull to it, always becoming less excited or fulfilled by their affirmation as it once did to us. So you see, right, why human approval cannot be what energizes you to do what's right. But if our validation comes from the King of Kings, even the most menial and frustrating task can be eternally meaningful. Everything that we do is elevated because it now brings glory to God. Because our excellence is the one of the best testimonies of the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into light. See, this solves the problem of insecurity because the approval of our Lord is not something that we can earn, but He has given to us freely. And it can always be energizing if we truly appreciate how meaningful this relationship we have with the Lord is. All right, so let me give you an example for marriage, okay? So my wife is a teacher, and if you're a teacher, you would know that your job makes you wake up at ungodly hours, okay? And because my wife is a teacher, I have a choice. I can either sleep in and fall asleep as she goes to work, or I can wake up at this ungodly hour and take her to work. For my own sake, I will never, never wake up at that time. But because her relationship with me is very meaningful, right? I've made a commitment to God <laughs> to commit to her. Even though I grumble as I wake up in the morning, I feel joy. I still do it because of the depth 
of the relationship. Even if I don't do it, will she still be my wife? Will she still, be lo- will she still love me? Hopefully. Right? <laughs> I, I assume so. But nonetheless, I do it not to earn her love, but for her sake and for her well-being. Likewise, when our service is to God, we understand truly how meaningful our relationship with Him is. So let's take a moment to imagine, friends, what would our society looks like if every Christian adopts this biblical ethic of excellence? If everyone views the service that they provide, no matter how small, to their countries, to their companies, to their families, as a service that's commissioned by the Lord and done for the Lord. I think the world would look like a whole lot of better place. I think Christians would be the best employees ever, the best business partners, the best citizens. And I think we'll see a lot more initiatives that will reverse the effects of sin and facilitate human flourishing because that's what our Lord wants. So what does that look like personally for you in your industry, in your work, in your hierarchical relationships? Only you can tell me. It's worth pondering, though, by both those who are under authority and those who have authority. Because, actually, in the new creation that God is bringing, this task is actually shared both by the slaves and masters, which is point two. Let's skip ahead uh, for a moment to Paul's instruction to the masters in verse 9. Though Paul's instruction to them is way shorter, it's definitely the most confrontational and controversial, at least in that context. And it simply says, do the same, same thing to them. And what is that same thing that they should be doing? Is what verse 7 says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man, what we talked about. And you can imagine how in a culture where it's drilled in to everyone's psyche that every slave is lower than you, that this is an unacceptable command. Not only are you considered equal, but now you have the same job as them. As in, now, Jesus calls you to serve your slave. Outrageous for them, right? This was probably Paul's most countercultural thought. And one application of this reality of how we do this is highlighted there by Paul in verse 9. That the masters must stop their threatening. You see, back then, it was completely acceptable in ancient Rome to force your slaves to bend to your will through some draconian measures. Violence, sexual abuse, separation and isolation from your family is all fair game. Because, well, your slaves aren't seen as actual people. They're your belongings. And you can do with what's yours what you want, to put it crassly. But if you're a Christian, You don't actually believe that any human belongs to anybody. Rather, you and them and everyone belongs to Christ. And everyone you have authority over, whether or not they're Christians, they're images of God. So you have no right to force them to do anything, let alone mistreat them or harm them. But it's like what Paul says in Philippians 2 uh, verse 3, when it says, Consider others greater than yourselves more significant than yourselves. Literally, it's telling you to think of other people of 
even though they're lower in their social hierarchy, to be of higher social status than you, than us. That's the Christian ethic of inequality, where everyone deserves dignity because they are God's images. And as such, there must be a commitment of mutual service to one another, no matter who they are. That's why he goes on to put the masters in their place at the end of verse 9 there, saying that, remember that you are actually also slaves. You have a master too in heaven. And he doesn't play favorites. Right? That sounds intense, doesn't it? Paul's not messing around. But that is really the key, isn't it? If we ever want to experience a completely equal world, is to genuinely internalize and take to heart that how in the eyes of God we are equal, equally held to the same standard and equally needing the salvation through the same Lord. So let me ask you, what makes you feel like you're better than other people? How much money you have? What school you went to? What titles or positions that you have? I know for a fact that a lot of you have quite a few subordinates. And the fact that you understand what I'm saying, all of you guys, shows me that you know enough English to have the potential for upward social mobility that most people in this country can only dream of. Hence, it's really easy for people of this church specifically to feel like we're better than other people. So we must get it through our heads that we really, really, really are not apart from the surpassingly generous grace of God, apart from Jesus, we are nothing. We cannot boast about anything, even the things that we achieve through our hard work. Everything is a gift from God. Yet, as Jesus said, to whom more is given, more is required. So whatever it is that we happen to be entrusted by God is ours for what? For His purposes, which is to do what? To serve people, to bless them with the blessings that God gave us. Any authority or resources given to us is to be used for that end. Because in the kingdom of God, the more authority you have, the more you serve and not be served. Isn't that what the Son of Man came to do? Isn't that what Jesus' life is all about? Friends, I don't think it's too hard to say that God hates, He hates it when we lord our power over another human, when we deny them the dignity that is owed to them by unjustly treating them and forcing them to do what you want. Read the prophets. That's literally why He sent the nation of Israel into exile, His own chosen people. Because nothing can be further than the character of God than that. Our Lord is a God who consistently lifts up the weak. We did not see His authority as something to be grasped, something to be insecure about, or to be used to His own advantage, but He gave it up to become a servant so that His servants may receive salvation. That's the master in heaven we all serve, and that's the kind of self-sacrificial servant leadership that we are all expected to follow. Because the old adage, friends, is indeed true. 
that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Especially in a culture like ours that normalizes giving figures of authority special treatment. And we can really end up feeling like we are actually special. Unless we actively behave counterculturally and play by the same rules as our employees, even if our family owns the business. Unless we don't bend the rules just because we have the money, resources, and connections to do so. Unless our companies and organizations make it a point to compensate those who are working for us in a way that actually gives them dignity and not forces them into this penny-pinching financial oppression. Unless it becomes truly more important for us that those who are working for us are taken care of than how much profit or service we can get out of them. Just to name a few examples of the things that are normalized by culture that perpetuates the cycle of oppression of those without power. And I'm sure, friends, you guys can think about more. And I know, I know, I know, I know. What I'm saying feels super unrealistic. And some of you might even feel like your hand has been forced to do things that way, lest you lose place with the competition. And I'm neither in government nor business, and I don't have that many people under me, or of any. So I'm in no place to tell you guys how to conduct your business. So all I can do is urge you to think about and really internalize that when all is said and done, at the end of your life, when you're facing the throne of God in judgment, when He will hold you accountable for the things that you've done, He cares much, 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 much more about how you have cared for his people and how profitable or significant your operation is. Look, everything that we talked about this morning is definitely easier said than done. I realize that. It's scary for both parties to even try doing this. For subordinates who are already in a disadvantaged position, Committing to obedience and excellent service to another sinful human can really feel like making yourselves more vulnerable. And for people who have authority, the superiors committing to serve those you have charge of can feel like you're going to sacrifice the productivity that you've worked so hard for while opening yourself up to have your generosity be taken for granted and taken advantage of. That's the reason why Paul's instructions here feel so scary is ultimately an issue of trust. Because it's hard to trust the people that you are serving to be grateful, let alone reciprocate your effort with an equal commitment to your well-being. But the thing is, friends, Paul isn't asking us to trust people, but the master who ultimately rewards us. So point three, super briefly. Notice now, verse 8 there, sandwiched between the address to the masters to the slaves, Paul reminds us of a truth that should be axiomatic for any relationship that we are uh, called to be a part of. Namely, that in this relationship, we are called to serve while knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive from the Lord. Okay, let me point out first two things that Paul is certainly not talking about, right? So he's not 
giving us this taburtuai, sowing and reaping principles. It's not the prosperity gospel, and if you do good things and you're faithful uh, in your suffering now, God will bless you with material abundance and health later, right? If you've been to this church long enough, you know certainly that that's not what we're about. But this might be surprising for some of you, nor is Paul talking about exclusively our post-mortem faith, right? After we die. Paul is certainly not saying that we just need to put up with how frustrating life might be now and it's all going to be worth it after we die and go to heaven. But just to be clear, we do believe there is a final judgment and there is a future time, most likely after uh, we're done with the life we have on earth, unless Jesus returns before that, when God's heavenly kingdom will be fully reunited to earth and the kingdom of the world will be the kingdom of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. And God has promised that this will be the destiny of our world. And when this comes to pass, whatever suffering we endure right now will indeed seem trivial compared to the glory that will be received and every tear that we have shed will indeed be wiped away. But we don't have to wait that long. Remember what the context of these instructions are. All the way back in chapter 5. It's actually part of a larger set of instructions about how to redeem the time by being filled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, these are all instructions about how we can experience the realities of new creation by the Holy Spirit right now. So the rewards Paul's talking about here is not for later exclusively. And Paul's been saying throughout chapter 5 that the key to enjoying this reward is to as much as we can live on earth right now as we would in the new creation. Starting with making every effort to be in right relationships, self-sacrificially serving those in our households, which back then includes everyone who works for us, and then to our wider church community, and to our city, and to our nation. And through that, God will reward us by giving us a taste of how relationship and work will be as it exists in the new creation, with perfect peace and abounding joy. You guys want that? Or to put it another way, Following Jesus means that the measure of the success of our efforts can never be something so finite as profit or profitability or popularity. All of these things, which may be useful and nice now, it'll all pass away along with everything else in this insane world. But what will remain forever is the love of God that's actually sustaining us daily even now. And this reunified human family that we are all now already a part of. And look around you. That is what will remain to the new creation. So living with an eye towards eternity, with a heavenly mindedness, means that all we do aims to help us be gratefully grounded in that truth. You know what I mean? Seeing what is truly meaningful and important in your life. And trust me, friends, I am far from being able to live out this new creation life consistently. 
I'm still so often ungrateful and anxious because if I think about it, I still think that it's on me to work everything out. That's why I get so frustrated when inevitably the sinful people I work for or work for me becomes an impediment to that. So I think it's worth thinking about, at least for me, how I can be behaving in my relationships, how I can be thinking about my work and setting up my life that will help me best notice that it is actually God who's taking care of me. How do I take eyes off myself and unto the goodness of the Lord? But if you don't think, friends, you know God like that and you aren't sure that He will take care of you, let me tell you something. He's been taking care of you all along. And if you want to enjoy the perfect peace that comes in knowing and being sure that the creator of heaven and earth himself is the one who lovingly nourishes you, I plead with you. Let go of the sins that's weighed you down. Stop working for yourself. Ask him for forgiveness. Put on his yoke. Work for him now. And God promises you that his yoke is indeed easy and his burden is light. I pray for us all to be able to experience that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our master. You have given us the opportunity, the privilege, Lord, to serve you. And you do that not by forcing us, but by allowing us to see your goodness and beauty such that we understand that there is no one else worth serving apart from you. Lord, allow us to realize how limited we are, how vain our efforts are, and allow us to see the people around us as you see them, as your images, and also that what you've given us, whatever capacities that you've allowed us to have, is for the purpose of serving them, to show them your goodness. Because we understand, Lord, it is only by doing your will and it is only by seeing and being in step with what you want to do will we find true peace and fulfillment in our calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.